This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. Nearly two years after massive nationwide uprisings for racial justice rocked the United States, black leaders and activists remain frustrated with a slow pace of change and with good reason. Beyond vague gestures toward diversity, equity, inclusion policies, and calls for racial healing, little appears to have changed. Now, a new book called The Black Agenda, Bold Solutions for a Broken System, brings together a collection of demands to center black leadership and black-led solutions across the spectrum of social problems in the nation. My guest is Anna Gifty Opoku Agyeman. She is a doctoral student studying public policy and economics at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Her work has been featured in Teen Vogue, The New York Times, Slate Magazine, NPR, Fortune, Marketplace, and The Guardian. And she's the co-founder of the Sadie Collective, the only nonprofit organization addressing the lack of black women in economic and related fields. In 2020, she became the youngest recipient for the CEDAW Women's Rights Award by the UN Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. She is the editor of the Black Agenda, Bold Solutions for a Broken System. Welcome to the program, Anna. Thank you so much for having me. So first, let's talk about where we are today. As I mentioned, nearly two years since the 2020 racial justice uprisings that were really historic, right? And they were historic because they were so multi-generational, multi-racial. And of course, it was the last year of the Trump presidency. And it was a moment of hope for many of us in the United States who cared about racial justice. How do you assess where we are at this point on in early 2022? So that's a great question. Essentially what's going on is we've essentially reverted back to even worse attitudes towards Black Lives Matter since those uprisings in the summer of 2020. So I cite Professor Hakeem Jefferson's work where he talks a little bit about how the support for Black Lives Matter actually declined um, past its pre-2020 levels um, in 2021. And so essentially where we're at right now is that, you know, the despite the fact that, you know, Black folks are still, you know, struggling in a number of different areas of society, we are still not seeing bold policies that are targeted at the Black American community more specifically, but broadly, really in terms in, uh, in addressing sort of marginalized communities, we're not seeing any progress on that front as well. Though there are sort of calls for, for more bold policies to address those um, schisms within um, how we think about policy making and then how do we think about the needs of the people. I mean, that's remarkable. So there was a certain level of support for Black Lives Matter and for, you know, seeing that uh, there needs to be uh, an addressing of things like police brutality. Then during the protest, you saw that support skyrocket, really big support across all racial groups. You're saying now that it's gone down below those levels that was before the protests. Why is it the conservative pushback against critical race theory, the sort of Trump effect of using uh, race as a wedge issue for Republicans to 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 win elections and basically just the re uh, resurgence of overt white supremacy? 
I think it's all those things and more, right? But I think it's also the clear decentering of Black voices, especially Black expertise, which is what this book highlights. So if we're thinking about the criminal justice system and we're thinking about what's happening with police, it's important that we actually have Black experts who know the literature, who know what's going on, both on the ground and with respect to the empirical work that's been done. And so what we're seeing is that while all of those you know, common themes are coming across the news and mainstream media, we're also seeing this sort of silencing of Black experts who ought to be at the helm of the conversation, right? Individuals who understand, you know, the disproportionate effects of policing on communities, not just on Black men, but also on Black women and children, in addition to other communities that are affected, such as Latinos and those who are Native American or Indigenous. And so we're thinking about the fact that not only is expertise missing from the conversation, but we're also missing these sort of critical components of how do we think about both policies in light of the expertise, right? It can't be that we are talking about a problem that has persisted since the inception of America the same way each decade. We need new and bold solutions, especially led by those who are disproportionately affected. And do you see this attitude in the discussions around uh, President Biden's uh, clear announcement that he wants to pick a black woman to replace Justin Stephen Breyer at the Supreme uh, Court? You see all of these voices saying, oh, this is just going to be an affirmative action hire, almost just assuming that, that there couldn't possibly be a black woman qualified enough to sit on the Supreme Court. Yeah, I think it's always interesting that people bring up qualifications when it comes to Black people. It's something that the late W.E.B. Du Bois talks about, you know, this idea that Black experts can never, ever be seen as objective or relevant enough for the mainstream, despite the fact that our lives are engrossed in public life, in public commentary, and how we think about social justice broadly. And so it's funny to me that, you know, people say that, you know, Black women can't be qualified for the Supreme Court, when in fact, a lot of times, Black folks have to work twice or thrice as hard to get just on the same level playing field, excuse me, to just be recognized as leaders and experts within their respective disciplines. The other thing that is quite interesting is the fact that Black women actually do make up a substantial part of the United States. And so this idea that Black women have never been represented in the highest court of the land is a little problematic, right? Considering the fact that, you know, we just went through an entire election period in which Black women were critical to the Democrats cinching that election for President Biden. And so I, I do see it as appropriate that President Biden would then um, appoint a Black woman in the Supreme Court. And I would also want to make note that, you know, President Biden is actually being quite consistent in how he's appointing Black women into leadership posts, right? Currently, there's a conversation happening around Dr. Lisa D. Cook, who is currently going to be potentially the first Black woman to ever be on the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, which is essentially the body that governs and sees over our economy, right? We also saw this with the Department of Labor with his appointment of Janelle Jones, who's no longer there, but she was the first Black woman to be the chief economist of the Department of Labor. We saw this with his appointment of Cecilia Rouse, Dr. Cecilia Rouse, who was actually the first chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. So it's actually not lost on me that Biden does recognize the, the role that Black women are playing, right? He's literally taking the listen to Black women phrase and actually putting it into practice. And I think we ought to do that as well.
Let's talk about specifically the topics you tackle in the book, The Black Agenda, which you have edited. You start out with climate change and climate justice movements. This is a realm, the environmental movement realm, that uh, a couple of decades ago were quite dominated by white leaders who basically placed themselves up front. Um, But uh, you saw the sort of environmental justice movements, native-led movements, and very specifically black movements rising uh, to the forefront. Why is climate an important issue where Black leadership matters? Absolutely. So one thing I want to mention is that I'm actually not an author of any of the essays in the book. These essays are written by the Black experts that were invited. And so that being said, with the Black climate section, right, we're talking about Black leaders who have been at the forefront of either the science, advocacy, or both. And so what they're really talking about is the fact that the climate change movement is in indeed whitewashed, right? And it's whitewashed in a way that actually harms black and brown communities. And so it's in everybody's best interest that black and brown leaders be at the helm of the conversation when it comes to thinking about climate solutions that serve us all. And so one thing that Dr. Marshall Shepard, who opens up the chapter, talks about is the fact that Hurricane Katrina kind of gave us a little bit of a glimpse of the devastation that climate change can cause if gone unchecked. And so when we think about that as sort of our starting point, it matters then that those communities that are going to be disproportionately affected by the climate crisis, then be the ones to think about solutions that actually encompass us all. It's the idea of going for those who are worse off so that everybody is subsequently better off. And to your point about you know the climate space being largely white dominated, if you think about the leadership and think about folks who oftentimes get airtime, that's sort of why the essay Stop All Lives Mattering, The Climate Crisis by Marianise Hagler is so key, right? This idea that you know when we think about the climate crisis, climate is at the end of the day, not the great equalizer, as she says, but rather the great multiplier. And so if you think about the inequities that currently exist as a result of different intersecting systemic um, failures, think about climate as sort of, I would say, multiplying that, right? Multiplying those things by two, three times as worse in the outcomes that affect black and brown people. And of course, so many times, if you have solutions being put forward by those who are privileged, they end up being solutions whose downsides impact vulnerable communities. So we see things like exactly. uh, the, the tech solutions being put forward uh, you know, in spaces like the COP26, the, the so-called net zero emissions carbon capture technologies. We saw a lot of black and brown activists on the ground in Glasgow last year saying, those technologies are likely going to be placed in our communities and we are right. going to be bearing the brunt of them. That's that's a critical issue, right? Absolutely, right? This idea that when you know folks are thinking about surveillance or thinking about ways to work out the kinks and new technologies almost always tested in black and brown communities that are going to be most vulnerable to them is a problem, right? And it's also addressed in the technology chapter. This is something that Dr. Brandeis Marshall calls algorithmic assault. Um, Deb Raji adds on and says, look, what's happening with the tech giants having sort of this control over the narrative around tech is also problematic. And so we have to get precise with the language as Jordan Harrod mentioned in her essay. And this idea is at the end of the day, technology and climate alongside healthcare, education, the economy, um, and, and the other topics that are addressed throughout the book are all tied inextricably together. And so it's not enough to say, 
oh, we only want black folks to speak on these certain issues because at the end of the day, these issues are intertwined in a way that actually harm black folks disproportionately. Right. And and so that idea, especially, and I'm glad you brought up healthcare, that idea that was raised during the pandemic, we are all in this together. A lot of black leaders pointed out saying, well, actually, some of us are impacted much more than others. Right. And when it comes to healthcare in particular, a lot of the sort of pre-existing conditions facing black communities because of our the inequity in our healthcare system made them more vulnerable. Right. So what is what is right. the black agenda on healthcare? There's a lot on um, the Black agenda on healthcare. And one thing I want to note about the healthcare chapter is that oftentimes when you are watching the news, you only hear from doctors. And one thing that I will make note of is, you know, as a child of nurses, nurses are oftentimes the backbone of the healthcare system. And so I went out of my way to reach out to nurses, nursing researchers, epidemiologists, folks who are thinking about public health on a praxis basis, folks who are thinking about the framework of how health is administered to really kind of illustrate what's going on with healthcare as we see it in respect to COVID-19 and the pandemic. And, and, and so, nurses tend to be women of color, right? They're disproportionately. Exactly, exactly, disproportionately so. And so that being said, um, the Black agenda with respect to healthcare is multi-pronged, right? Folks are talking about how healthcare cannot exist in a vacuum. We can't talk about solving the problem with respect to the pandemic without addressing economic justice, without addressing housing justice, without addressing how technology actually creates very uniquely horrible situations for black women in particular, um, and how colorism sort of comes into play as well, right? There are a number of different intersecting problems that create uniquely bad situations for black people across the country and arguably across the world. And so what the healthcare agenda talks about within the black agenda book is that, look, we need multi-pronged solutions that don't just address what's going on in our actual bodies, but what's also going on within the healthcare system itself. So Dr. Monica McLemore talks about we need a much better way of diversifying the workforce with respect to the healthcare system, right? We need to think about how the hierarchy that exists within healthcare is actually undermining care as we speak. You know, Dr. Dara Mendez and Jewel Scott talk about the fact that, you know, if we want to actually have a healthcare system that has sent equity at the center of it, we need to really talk about how critical race theory plays a role in shaping the practice of health, right? How do we think about administering health if we don't think about how racism has actually led us to administer health poorly? And so we're, we're touching on a number of different facets here, but at the end of the day, it's really about, you know, how do we ensure that black people have better health, health outcomes and therefore resulting in better health outcomes for everyone else? I was also particularly interested in the um, fact that one of your writers uh, brought up Henrietta Lacks, the black woman whose cells right. and whose uh, cell mind that remains alive today and, you know, about whom books and movies have been made, um, really is, you know, is, is someone whose literal sort of biological legacy yes. forms the basis of so much of, of our healthcare technology today, Right. Right. Yeah, and I think that that's a very clear example of Black life not being valued, right? This idea that her cells were harvested when she was essentially deceased and then used to then be profitable for so many white, predominantly white institutions within the healthcare space is problematic because then these same healthcare institutions don't hire black people, they don't value black people, they don't even acknowledge the contributions of black folks. And so while people might say, you know, I admire the resilience of Henrietta Lacks and her legacy in science, 
We still don't know if, you know, her family has been compensated as much as they should have. If the communities that are benefiting from her cells are actually communities of color, right? These are sort of lingering questions that have made her situation a very unique one and one that actually aligns quite nicely with what the healthcare agenda within the Black Agenda book suggests. There's uh, much to discuss here. Of course, we don't have time to talk about it all. I want to bring up uh, the economy. Uh, this is, I know, something that's near and dear to your heart. Um, tell me a little bit about how um, we need to, s what you think needs to happen in order to center Black-led solutions on the economy, because this is critical when we talk about yes. equity or e equality you know, yes. we've got to get down to brass tacks. We've got to get down to money. 100%. I think the biggest thing is actually illustrated by Janelle Jones and Angela Hanks's essay titled Black Women Best, right? This idea of America's best begins with Black Women Best. And so Black Women Best is a framework that was coined by Janelle Jones that says, look, the best outcome for Black women economically is a better outcome for everyone else. So if you think about that across, you know, economic opportunity, if you think about that across education, if you think about that across voting rights, right? If you are centering Black women in how we think about the, ec the economy and policy in general, ultimately, Black women are a really, really good proxy for progress in this country. Oftentimes, what's happening with Black women is happening worse for other marginalized groups, if not at the same level. So think about Native Americans, think about Latino women. These groups are comparable in the sense that their economic outcomes are very much alike. However, Black women oftentimes are uniquely marginalized in the workplace. And so it's important to recognize that if we're framing economic policies around workers, around thinking about, you know, how does recovery look like? How does how do we measure certain um, economic data or economic statistics? Starting with Black women and disaggregating the data is a really, really important place to start. And so if we think about the economic solutions towards relief and recovery, as I mentioned, we want to think about are Black women you know, being relieved of the economic crisis? Are Black women recovering? I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Right, right after the 2008 crisis, we saw there was a long recovery period from 2009 to 2011 and beyond. And during that period, while every other group's unemployment rate declined, black women's unemployment rate rose. And that's actually a similar trend as we're seeing as of, um, I would say January of 2022, right? Where everybody's unemployment rate basically declined, black women's unemployment rate rose. And what we're also seeing too is that black women are the backbone of their communities. And this is reflected even further in the criminal justice chapter under um, Dr. Hedwig Lee's essay, where she talks about how the mass incarceration of black men has left a lot of black women to essentially be the backbone of their households. And so it's absolutely essential that black women then be used as a proxy of progress, specifically economic progress, when we think about the economy moving forward. You have a chapter, an essay written by Fanaba Addo that links yes. the issue of the economy with education. A black generation wealth depends on student debt forgiveness. Um, and tell me a little bit about how those two issues intersect and how yes. the educational system in particular can learn so much from the leadership shown in historically black, black colleges and universities, HBCUs. Absolutely. So HBCUs, for those who don't know, are historically black colleges and universities, as you mentioned. And so they actually educate 
the largest percentage of black students in the United States. And HBCUs are actually a common theme that pop up throughout the entire book where many of the experts say, look, if we're thinking about caregiving, if we're thinking about the future of work, we need to begin with HBCUs that have actually been instrumental in educating the next generation of black leaders and black professionals. And so in her essay, Dr. Fenneba Addo illustrates what's going on with the student debt crisis. She says, look, what we're seeing is that black folks are disproportionately borrowing money and taking out loans in a way that does not allow them to build lasting wealth, generational wealth. And this wealth. isn't surprising considering that there hasn't been generational wealth to That's fund exactly the college right. to begin with. That's exactly right. And if you also think about Black Americans in particular, right, going to Cliff Albright's essay, Black Americans didn't have voting rights for a, a very, very long time, right? And if you think about slavery, the legacy of slavery, Jim Crow, segregation, and everything that's come afterwards, there have been a number of different institutional-wide situations in which Black Americans have been intentionally kept away from wealth building and building equity. And so what Dr. Feneba Addo is talking about here is that we see amongst student debt holders that Black women have the highest amount of student debt. And so going back to what I was saying about Black women best, it's important that we then target student debt forgiveness around forgiving debt of those who are most vulnerable to the economic system as it currently stands. And so she says, look, look at black students, look at black people. These are the individuals who oftentimes are most vulnerable to predatory loans within the higher education system, but also to for-profit colleges that tend to make students take out loans. And so it's in everybody's best interest, economically speaking, to have folks be forgiven of their student loans, especially black folks who we hope can build generational wealth from here on out. And then uh, how can HBCUs kind of show the way to other and to all colleges and universities, higher institutions of higher learning that are struggling today? You know, we have multiple crises around either student debt or what is being taught or even the economic uh, setup where um, students are being asked to pay more and more. Faculty are not necessarily even getting paid fairly. You see um, institutions being run like corporations. Uh, and of course, all of this in an economy that fails to be a meritocracy as much as it you know we might like to think it is i always say that academia is not a meritocracy it's a meritocracy mm. meaning that academia oftentimes like many other institutions across the west replicates itself and so a number of individuals who might sit in academia may say look we are interested in admitting black and brown students who can clear certain, certain threshold. But we know that, you know, based on the data, based on the evidence, that threshold moves depending on your racial and ethnic identity. And currently there's a lot of conversation happening around that in higher education as we speak. And so to your point about academic institutions playing a role in doing this, first and foremost, I would recommend looking at the black agenda and seeing how it might fit into your syllabus, right? This is a book that is a resource first and foremost. You might not agree with every perspective in the book, but this book does add invaluable resource and invaluable um, insights that can then sort of usher conversations that can lead to more equitable spaces within your academic or you know collegiate institution, right? And so that being said, it's not enough to say, look, I care about black people and I'm not racist. You actually have to center black voices and black expertise. As Dr. Trustee McMillan Cotton says in her foreword of the book, 
She says, look, any place that's not centering black expertise is becoming a vacuum for white rage. And so if we are to ensure that equity is at the center of the future that we're hoping to all arrive at, it's not enough then to say, look, I'm just going to talk about black people during Black History Month and then I'm done for the year. That's not enough. We actually have to have black voices be integrated into the literal cultural and I would say um, into the literal uh, air that we breathe in the academic space. And so it's not enough to say, look, we want to silo black people to just one thing, but rather see how black people can integrate into the vast amount of knowledge that is, you know, led through academic spaces. Anna, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time and good luck with the book. Thank you so much for having me, Sonali. I really, really appreciate it. My guest has been Anna Gifty Opoku Ageman. She is a doctoral student studying public policy and economics at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and the editor of the new book that we've been discussing, The Black Agenda, Bold Solutions for a Broken System. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com. By becoming a subscriber, find our audio podcast on iTunes and Apple Music and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at RU with Sonali.